Welcome to 5 at 8. I'm Mark Overman, and this morning I'm joined by Linda Carlisle. It's Sunday, July 23rd, 2023. In this episode, we will talk about fresh Russian missile strikes on the port city of Odessa, Intel's development of a deepfake detection system, the decline in English owners of second homes in Europe since Brexit, the global bird flu outbreak, and the groundbreaking exhibition of contemporary African photography at the Tate Modern in London. Story number one. In fresh Russian missile strikes on the port city of Odessa, at least one person has been killed and 19 others injured, as reported by the BBC. The strikes also caused damage to the historical Transfiguration Cathedral and destroyed six residential buildings. Odessa's military administration reported severe damage to the cathedral, the largest Orthodox church in the city. The UN's cultural agency, UNESCO, has called on Russia to cease attacks on Odessa which was designated an endangered World Heritage Site earlier this year. The attacks have escalated since Russia withdrew from a grain deal with Ukraine. The deal, brokered by Turkey and the UN, allowed cargo ships to sail along a corridor in the Black Sea. Goodness, Linda, this news hits hard. The city of Odessa, a place that holds such historical and cultural significance, getting struck by missiles. It's heart-wrenching to hear about the destruction of the Transfiguration Cathedral, an architectural marvel, a symbol of faith, and a part of Ukraine's rich heritage just reduced to rubble. It's a stark reminder that in modern warfare, cultural heritage isn't immune to the collateral damage. It's deeply disturbing to witness such blatant disregard for historically and culturally significant structures. And it's not just about the destruction of physical structures. It's also about the erasure of cultural identity and collective memory, which is incalculable. Just think about the Bamiyan Buddhas in Afghanistan, or the ancient artifacts in Iraq. Once destroyed, these pieces of our shared human heritage can't be replaced. An attack on these cultural sites is an attack on the identity of a people. The Transfiguration Cathedral, for instance. It's not just a building, it's a symbol of the Ukrainian Orthodox faith, a part of their national identity. And it's been there since 1809. To see it damaged in this war is... It's just disgraceful. And let's not forget, Mark, these aren't just historic sites. They're active places of worship. The distress and the sense of loss for the local community must be immense. It's a clear violation of the rules of war, which categorically state that religious institutions should not be targeted. It's a grim reminder of how warfare tactics can be so inhumane. And it's not just the moral issue here. It's also about international law and humanitarian efforts. UNESCO, for instance, has been urging Russia to stop the attacks on Odessa, which is an endangered World Heritage Site. But the attacks continue, showing a complete disregard for international pleas and conventions. The long-term effects of such damage are far-reaching. Rebuilding these structures is one thing, but restoring the cultural and historical value they held, that's another. The international community must step up to protect cultural heritage during conflicts. Story number two. According to the BBC, Intel has developed a deep fake detection system called Fake Catcher that analyzes changes in blood flow and eye movement to distinguish between real and fake videos. The system claims to be 96% accurate in detecting deep fakes but it encountered difficulties when analyzing authentic videos, often labeling them as fake. Critics argue that the system's accuracy needs to be independently evaluated in real-world contexts, as self-testing may not provide an accurate reflection of its performance. 
While the technology shows potential, it still has room for improvement based on limited tests. Are we looking at the dawn of a new era with Intel's fake catcher, Linda? It's fascinating to think about how technology like this is being developed to combat the rise of deepfakes, especially considering the potential harm these manipulated videos and images can cause. It's kind of like watching a high-tech battle of wits play out. Yes, Mark. It's indeed an intriguing development. The concept of using photoplethysmography or PPG to detect changes in blood flow to determine a video's authenticity is both unique and somewhat reassuring. But it also underscores the magnitude of the challenge we face in the digital age. The fact that we've reached a point where AI-generated deepfakes can be so convincing that we need advanced tech to distinguish them is a sobering thought. It's like a modern-day version of the arms race, but instead of nuclear weapons, we're dealing with information warfare. And it's not just about the tech behind fake catcher, it's about the broader implications. Think about how deepfakes could impact politics, business, even our personal lives. The stakes are incredibly high. The societal implications are indeed vast. Misinformation and disinformation have been used as tools of manipulation for centuries. But the sophistication and accessibility of deepfake technology take it to a whole new level. Yet, as the testing showed, even this promising tool has its limitations. It's a reminder that while technology can help us fight these challenges, it's not a magic bullet. Right you are, Linda. We need to remember that it's not just about creating more sophisticated detection tools. It's also about educating people, promoting critical thinking and media literacy. Technology can only take us so far. At the end of the day, it's about us, the people, being able to discern truth from fiction. The human element is just as important, if not more so, in tackling this problem. Our collective resilience in the face of these challenges will ultimately define the outcome. It's a complex issue that requires a multifaceted approach and vigilance from every corner of society. As we continue to navigate this digital landscape, our ability to adapt, learn, and collaborate will be crucial. Story number three. According to The Guardian, the number of English owners of second homes in Europe has significantly declined since Brexit, as reported by the English Housing Survey. The survey reveals that currently, fewer than 30% of second homes owned by people in England are located in Europe, compared to 40% in 2012. The new regulations following Brexit, which restrict British citizens without a visa from spending more than 90 days in an EU country within a 180-day period, have deterred many from buying properties in Europe. Instead, more English people are opting to purchase second homes within the UK, with 520,000 households now owning second homes in the country. Where there's change, there's opportunity, right, Linda? The drop in the number of English owners of second homes in France and Spain due to Brexit, that's a big deal. It's gone down to 60,000 from 89,000 in 2008. That's nearly a one-third drop. What's causing such a shift? In many ways, this shift can be attributed to the changes brought about by Brexit. It has resulted in British citizens without a visa being restricted to spending no more than 90 days in an EU country in any 180-day period. This, combined with the increased bureaucracy, has deterred many from owning second homes in Europe. That's a bummer, isn't it? But on the flip side, it looks like second home ownership within the UK is booming. The figures have almost doubled, from 279,000 in 2008 to 520,000 now. So, is this a silver lining or does it bring its own set of challenges? 
Well, it's a bit of both, Mark. On one hand, it's boosting the domestic real estate market. But on the other hand, the rising trend of second home ownership, particularly in tourist hotspots, is raising concerns. It potentially takes homes away from locals and those who work in the tourist industries, which could make these areas unsustainable in the long run. Hmm, interesting. So it's like a double-edged sword. Now I'm curious, Linda. Based on historical cases or similar situations in other countries, what could be the long-term impact of this shift in second home ownership on the property markets and regional economies? Great question, Mark. History shows us that shifts in property ownership patterns can have far-reaching economic and social effects. For instance, a decrease in foreign property ownership can lead to decreased demand and potentially lower property values. This can impact homeowners whose wealth is tied up in their property. On the other hand, an increase in domestic second home ownership could lead to rising property prices, pricing out locals and first-time buyers. So, it's a complex issue with no easy answers. Story number four. Millions of wild birds around the world may have died from bird flu in the latest outbreak, with South America being particularly affected, as reported by The Guardian. The highly infectious variant of H5N1 has caused widespread deaths among wild birds, including over 200,000 deaths in Peru alone. The true scale of mortality is difficult to determine, but researchers estimate that millions of birds have died globally. The outbreaks are causing population and species-level concerns, potentially leading to extinctions and jeopardizing conservation efforts. The virus has now been reported on every continent except Oceania and Antarctica, raising concerns about its potential spread to Australia. The disease has also been detected in Indonesia. Europe is experiencing its second breeding season with H5N1, affecting different bird species compared to last year. In the UK, black-headed gulls and terns have been heavily impacted, with 10% of black-headed gulls dying since the end of March. The long-term effects of the outbreak on bird populations are still uncertain. Are we looking at the age of extinction, Linda? It's staggering to think that millions of wild birds across the globe might have died due to this bird flu outbreak. South America is getting hit incredibly hard, with Peru recording 200,000 bird deaths alone. It's, uh, it's distressing to say the least. The situation is gravely serious. The scale of mortality among wild birds is likely in the millions, which is far greater than the tens of thousands initially reported. It's not just about the numbers, though. The impact of bird flu goes beyond individual bird deaths. It's causing significant population and species-level concerns, which could jeopardize decades of conservation efforts. That's a... that's a sobering thought. So... You're saying that this bird flu outbreak could potentially drive some bird species to extinction? And it's not just confined to South America, right? Correct, Mark. The virus spread globally after causing Europe's worst bird flu outbreak in the winter of 2021. It has now been reported on every continent except Oceania and Antarctica. The disease has also found its way into South America for the first time, where birds lack immunity due to lack of previous exposure. This has contributed to the high mortality rates. The virus has also been detected in Indonesia, raising concerns that Australia could be hit next. Wow, it's like, it's a global crisis then, but there's a, uh, there's something I don't quite get. If this is such a massive issue, why aren't other countries being as active as Peru in recording and reporting bird flu deaths? That's a good question, Mark. The issue lies in the lack of resources and transparency. Some countries may not have adequate resources to report on the impact of the virus. 
others might be less open about what is happening. For instance, Brazil, the world's biggest chicken meat exporter, confirmed cases in wild birds six months after reports from Peru. It's also worth mentioning that there are significant gaps in surveillance data, especially in parts of Central Asia and Africa. The lack of reporting does not necessarily mean the virus is not present in these regions. So, it's like a hidden crisis then. We're dealing with something that's invisible in some parts of the world due to lack of resources or transparency. That's... that's really concerning. And uh, what about the long-term effects? Can these bird populations recover? Or are we looking at irreversible damage? The long-term effects are still uncertain, Mark. The concern is that some bird populations may never recover. On a more hopeful note, recent research suggests that some bird species, such as the northern gannets and great skuas, which were severely hit in 2022, have had very few deaths this year. Preliminary research suggests some birds may have developed immunity. The darker the bird's eyes, the more likely it might have some immunity. However, this does not apply to all birds, and further research is needed. It's a complex issue, and we are still learning about the virus and its impacts. Story number five. According to the BBC, the Tate Modern in London is currently hosting a groundbreaking exhibition of contemporary African photography. The exhibition, titled A World in Common, showcases the work of 36 artists from Africa and its diaspora, delving into themes of identity, tradition, counter-histories, and imagined futures. Through powerful photographs, videos, and installations, the collection presents the diversity and complexity of the African continent. The aim of the exhibition, as reported by the BBC, is to challenge Western perceptions of Africa and emphasize the shared histories and experiences that have shaped the continent. Osei Bonsu, the curator, hopes that the exhibition, as stated by the BBC, will inspire viewers to see the world from an African perspective. When I think about this massive exhibition at the Tate Modern, Linda, it's hard not to be struck by the sheer scale of it. Over 150 works from 36 artists, all coming from Africa or its diaspora. This is a mammoth representation of African artistry that we're witnessing. I love the thematic approach curator Osei Bonsu has taken. Identity, tradition, counter-histories, imagined futures. It's like a holistic journey through the African experience. And the title itself, A World in Common, seems to underpin this holistic approach. It's inspired by Cameroonian historian Achille Mbembe's idea of viewing the world from an African perspective. This is not just about presenting African art to the world, but also about challenging the world to see itself through an African lens. It's a powerful message that resonates with the current global dialogue on decolonization and representation. Right you are, Linda. And speaking of representation, it's fascinating how this exhibition is shattering stereotypes about Africa that have been perpetuated by Western imagery. Each artist featured in this exhibition is telling a unique story. From Zina Sarowiwa's exploration of mask-wearing among the Ogoni people in the Niger Delta, to Dewit El Petros's poignant depiction of the perils of migration, it's like the artists are reclaiming their narratives. And this reclamation of narrative is so important. For so long, Africa's story has been told by others, often through a distorted lens. But here we see Africa unmasked, raw and real through its own lens. The power of this exhibition lies not just in the beauty of the artworks, but in their authenticity. Couldn't agree more, Linda. And you know, it also speaks volumes about the role of art in shaping perceptions and building bridges. 
Art has this unique ability to transcend borders and cultures. A picture, as they say, is worth a thousand words. And these pictures are telling a story that needs to be heard, of a vibrant, diverse, and evolving Africa. Yes, Mark. And let's not forget the potential implications of this exhibition. By putting emerging African talent in the spotlight, the Tate Modern is helping shape the world's artistic agenda. This exhibition could be the catalyst for a broader appreciation of African art and might even inspire similar exhibitions around the world, including Africa itself. Now, wouldn't that be something to look forward to? That's it for this morning. Have a great day and see you all tomorrow. Five at Eight is researched, written, and performed by artificial intelligence. For more information, visit botcaster.ai.